Well, I hope everybody had a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Now that the turkey's behind us, right? No more turkey, hopefully. Um, <clears throat> well, we know as believers, as the people of God, that Thanksgiving is not just a one-day-a-year occasion, right? I mean, we got that. We know that as a, as a country, we celebrate nationwide. We want to encourage and challenge families across the land to express thankfulness, uh, specifically thankfulness to the Lord for his bountifulness, right, for his blessings. And so, um, you know, we, we know that we need God on a daily basis. We need him in our lives. Therefore, we need to express thankfulness to God daily, one day at a time, every single day. Our gratitude needs to be uh, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. Did you know that being thankful is, uh, is, is healthy? I don't know if you knew that. Back in 2009, there was a study that was done in the University of California. And um, a professor by the name of Robert Emmons at Davis, he did a study regarding, uh, regarding his research in that of being thankful. And he said, those who offer gratitude are less envious and resentful. Do we know anybody that needs to, um, or that this category, right? Those who offer gratitude are less envious and resentful. They sleep longer, exercise more, and report a drop in blood pressure. Did I hear an amen? Oh. <laughs> Emmons, the professor, uh, is the author of the book, Thanks, How Practicing Gratitude Can Make You Happier earlier book that, des uh, that describes gratitude as a, quote, new science. Brenda Shana, uh, Shoshana is a New York psychologist who agrees, and she says you can't be depressed and grateful at the same time. She is the author of a book called 365 Ways to Give Thanks, one for every day of the year. So it makes a person physically, mentally in every way, healthier, end quote. So we can see that there is a sense of goodness when people are grateful, when there's a sense of gratitude, when there is thankfulness in their heart. And so this, this study and these psychologists, they're, they're on to something. And I'll, share, I'll say a little bit more about this uh, later on in the message. But this morning, though, I do want to draw your attention to a particular psalm, a psalm um, in which uh, thankfulness takes center stage. You know, when you hear the word psalm, what comes to mind? I mean, we know that it's in the Bible. It's a book in the Bible, right? And so let me just kind of give you a little backdrop. Um, we know that the book of Psalm falls within the, the, what is known as the wisdom books. There's five of them, right? I think it's what uh, students went over this, right? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, that's right. They're the wisdom literature books. And, um, and what these psalms are, there's this, there's this collection of prayers, right? It's this collection of prayers and praises in which over the centuries, God's people have used for public worship and for private meditation. The word psalm itself in the original language signifies music accompanied by string instruments and it's usually like a harp or a lyre 
So there's a connection in the original writing of the word psalms or praise or thanks. It's musically connected, usually to stringed instruments. And we got a lot of stringed instruments in our modern day, right? We use bass and guitar and piano. And you might say, what, piano? Yeah, absolutely. You open that thing up and it looks like a harp in there. There's a bunch of strings in there, you know? And there, there's something about playing these string instruments in connection with your, uh, with your song that becomes a, a worshipful experience with, with these prayers and these praises. So the book of Psalm has 150 individual psalms, individual songs, poems, which make it the largest collection of ancient lyrical poetry in existence today. They've been around for centuries. Think about it. I mean, since way before the time of Christ. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, but go back another 1,500 years or so. I mean, to the time of David, right? So it's like a giant inspired hymnal book. That's what it is. It's like a huge inspired by God hymnal book. And um, think about it. Can you imagine, Pastor Greg, at the end of the service, maybe we can sing one of those, like Psalms 119. It's got 176 verses. We'll just do it twice just to keep it short. <clears throat> but um, yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is. And, and, and there's different, uh, not genres, but just different styles, different variations of these songs or these psalms, right? It's, it's filled with lament psalms and descriptive psalms and messianic psalms and nature songs and wisdom psalms. There's all kinds of psalms uh, that, that make up this collection of songs in the book of Psalms. So about half of them, maybe between 70 to 80 of these psalms were written by King David. Now, we know that King David uh, was a nationalistic hero for the nation of Israel, but he was a warrior. Yeah, he, king, he killed King uh, uh, Dave, uh, Goliath, right, with a sling and so forth. And then, and then, well, we won't get into the graphic part of that, but we know that he was a warrior. He's seen as a hero over the century, but he was also a musician. He was also, uh, he loved worship. He loved to write down his thoughts and in 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 a, a sense of gratefulness and thankfulness before the god before god he'd get his lyre you know his harp or whatever and, and he put these words and these lyrics together in a very profound and, and powerful way before the lord and we still have them in existence today isn't that cool it's kind of like like uh, the reformer uh, uh martin luther right we know him as a great preacher reformer but he also wrote some songs, you know, but can you imagine uh, 150 of these songs, half of them belong to King David. So one of the Psalms that he wrote is Psalms 138. So I'm going to draw your attention to that Psalm. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there 138. And we're going to go through those eight verses and we're just going to break it up a little bit. And this Psalm is known as a declarative Psalm. Now, what does that mean? Well, while a descriptive psalm tells and speaks of God's overarching attributes about his deeds and his works, it's just in general, right? God is awesome. He's amazing. And we talk about his great power and love and so forth in general. But a declarative psalm uh, uh, emerges out of a, a specific incident of God's goodness. This kind of psalm is in response to how God has ministered in a certain experience, usually in response to a request or a petition by someone who's been in distress 
who's been struggling or has been in anguish. And so he writes this declarative, this proclamation. Hey, in this song that I'm writing, let me tell you what God has done. I'm extremely thankful. I'm extremely grateful. It's this song of gratitude that I'm going to pen right now and sing before before God so that it can be done publicly and you can know and understand my connection and my heart that goes beyond this ink here. And he starts off in, uh, in Psalm 138, verse 1, it says, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing your praise before the heavenly beings. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your constant love and truth. You've exalted your name and your promise above everything else. On the day I called, you answered me. You increased strength within me. All the kings on earth will give you thanks, Lord, when they hear what you have promised. They will sing of the Lord's ways, for the Lord's glory is great. Though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble. But he knows the haughty from a distance. If I walk into the thick of danger... You will preserve my life from the anger of my enemies. And you will extend your hand. Your right hand will save me. The Lord will fulfill his promise for me. Lord, your faithful love endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. He starts off in verse 1 with just a... From the get-go, right? Just from the get-go, a thankful praise before God. He says, it's an intentional proclamation. He says, I will give you thanks with all my heart. Now, why, why does he start that way? With all of my heart. In other words, he's telling the audience... He's saying, listen, I'm, a, I'm approaching God not because it's grudgingly an, an obligation. I have to, oh, I got to come before God. I got to go to church. I got to worship towards his temple. This is with my, my entire being. I want to approach your throne. I want to express my great gratefulness to you, Lord. I will sing your praise before the heavenly beings. That's all in verse 1. So he's approaching God. He's thanking God with everything that is within him. His entire soul, all his emotions. He's grateful. He's thankful. And then he says, I'm going to sing your praise before the heavenly beings. Now, I'm reading out of the CSB here. And prior to this, I read from the ESV. And then prior to that, I was using the New King James Version. And prior to that, I was using the uh, the NIV, the New International Version, and then prior to that, I was using the Good News Version. And after that, before that, I was using the Kingdom. I've read, I've gone through all these different versions, gone going through the Bible study. I love just kind of crisscrossing and seeing the different words that are used in some of these psalms, some of these words, these songs, um, because it just kind of helps us get a, a, a good grip on what is trying to be communicated in our English language. And this is the only version. That mentions heavenly beings. All the other ones say, um, I, I, will praise, I will praise the Lord before the gods. Liturgy. Plural. And so the, uh, the, you know, the, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, and, and, and the Aramaic version renders 
human kings or judges, rulers, which is not really far-fetched if you want to go that route, right? It's not really far-fetched because over the ages, many men with political power have deemed themselves to be gods or some sort of deity, right? I mean, just think of the pharaohs or think of the, the Roman emperors, right? Julius Caesar is divine and his children are divine or these demigods that, we, that need to be worshipped. As a matter of fact, the, the early Christian church was persecuted. They wanted, to, they wanted them to vocalize not that Jesus is Lord, but that Caesar was Lord. And so it's not too far-fetched that man, especially with power and high uh, leadership over the ages, have claimed to be some sort of a deity, some, t- some type of a god. Now, another possibility is that of the, of the Near East gods, which David was very familiar with. You know, God had promised him the, the promised land, and he said, hey, uh, Moses told the children of Israel, when you get there, make sure that you don't bow down, that you're not, you're not distracted by the godlessness that's going uh, to surround you guys. You serve the living God. You serve a holy God, one God, our God, the God of Israel. All the other ones are idols. All the other ones are made out of metal and, 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 and wood and, 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 and they're made out of stone and rock. Don't worship. Don't follow after those gods. So it's not too, you know, it's not out of bounds to think that when David said, I'm going to praise you, Lord, before the gods, he's, he's probably saying even the ones that, the, that mankind has conjured up. Hey, I'm going to worship the sun. Hey, I'm going to worship the moon. Hey, I'm going to worship this eagle. Yeah, I'm going to sculpt it out, you know. Isaiah says, you know, what is it? What are these idols made up of, right? They're smelted together with metal and iron, and then you got to move them around, and you got to make sure that they don't fall over, right? They're supposed to take care of you, but you're taking care of those idols. You're dusting them off. You're moving them from here to the counter over here, and after they get a little dusty, let's move them over here. And we put our devotion into these things. And, and David is clear and says, hey, Lord, I'm grateful, I'm thankful, and my whole being is going to worship you, the only true God who is high above all gods. Now, in other uh, psalms, other songs that he wrote, similarly, he says in, in Psalm 96, 4, for example, he says, For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. Now, he says that even in, the, in this version as well. He's feared above all gods. In this passage, David is not He's not validating that these gods exist. He's not validating that these idols uh, are are, are legit. In a similar way, uh, the Apostle Paul found himself in a a, a similar circumstance, uh, circumstance when he wrote, remember that fiery letter he wrote to the Galatians? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's deceived you? Man, he started off, you know, all right, Apostle Paul and, you know, of Jesus Christ. And then he just, bam, by verse 6, he's already letting them know with a passion what's going on. Why have you been deceived? He says this in Galatians 6 and 7. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who has called you by the grace of Christ and are turning, here it is, to a different gospel. Now, one might think, wait a minute, Paul, does that mean that there's other gospels? But he immediately slams on the brake because the next part of his verse is not that there's any other gospel. (laughs) That's what he says. I love it, right? He says, well, why you've been deceived? 
Why are you going after, you know, you're, you're following these other gospels. Wait a minute. There is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. So if Jesus, if, if, if God Almighty, he is the king of kings, well, that, that makes sense. He's above all names. Absolutely, because there's a lot of names. There's a lot of kings. He's the Lord of lords, a lot of lords. But he's above and superior over the kings, superior over the lords, right? He is superior over that. But when it comes down to God's, no competition. They don't even exist. They're not around. They're idols. When it comes down to the gospel, there's no other good news. There's only one solid gospel good news. It's the one that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to redeem us, to purchase us, to die in our stead so that we can find eternal life in him and through him. That's the one and only gospel. There is no other gospel. All the other, if there is another gospel, you know, immediately after that, he tells the Galatians, listen, even if an angel from heaven comes and gives you another gospel, you don't believe that. And I, you know, I, I, I like the way that he uses a heavenly angel versus a fallen angel. It would have been easy to understand, well, hey, even if the devil comes, right, and tries to deceive you, even if a, if a, if a fallen angel comes and tries to tell you a little different, don't be, ah, he says, let me tell you, I'm dead serious about that. There's only one gospel, and even if one of the angels of God in heaven, a good angel, Gabriel, Michael, anybody, if they come and they twist that gospel, it's out of bounds. You need to get them from their wings and throw them out of the church because it's another gospel. There's only one gospel one good news and so what david is saying you know the idea that he says in 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 psalm 97 and another psalm he says for you lord are the most high over the whole earth you are exalted above all the gods now there he's definitely referring to the false gods the idea here is that god sits on his throne in heaven as the supreme god over the angels over the fallen angels, including Satan. He sits supremely over rulers. He sits supremely over kings and judges and emperors and presidents. He reigns supremely over any made-up God, over anything that man venerates above God. In Psalms 38, verse 2, he goes on and says, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your constant love and truth. You have exalted your name. And so he says in this song as he's singing it, I'm a, I'm a, I don't know, maybe in a minor note or something of some sort, right? By bowing down, I'm going to proclaim you. I'm grateful. I'm thankful. I'm going to worship you above everything else, everyone else. And I'm going to bow down. Here, picture this. Here is a king, a well-known, popular, respectable king. And he writes, I'm going to bow down. And whether he's in the battlefield and he knows where the temple is, he's going to bow towards that temple. If he's in Jerusalem, if it's time to pray, wherever the temple is. Now, we know uh, historically and biblically in the Old Testament, uh, the tabernacle and the the temple kind of represented the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. And so that's what got uh, the the Jews and the Israelites in trouble a lot of times, right? Because they trusted that, well, you know, we got the temple, and we got the temple, we got God. And if God is on us, let the enemies come, we're going to be okay. And to their surprise, God allowed the enemies to come and take over. Booted them out of their own land. Because it's not the actual temple. Jesus said in the New Testament, 
you and I, we're the temple. The kingdom is within you. The apostle Paul says, hey, you don't belong to yourself. You need to worship God with this body because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the presence, the very presence of God abides in you. So you don't have to bow towards a temple. You can just bow your heart before God and come lowly before him. And if King David can do it, you and I can also bow. He came singing. He came bowing before the Lord. It's a, a, a singular and exclusive commitment to God Almighty. He gives thanks to the Lord because his, his steadfast love. David acknowledges that God is always operating and functioning in accordance with his moral perfection, his constant love, and his truth, right? In his commitments, in his character, God has been unswervingly uh, true. Unlike the false gods of the ancient world, the Lord has exalted his name and his word. In verse 3, David gives us the crux of this psalm. In other words, the heart of this song. This is it. Let me tell you why I'm giving you thanks. Let me tell you why I'm going to worship him above all the gods. Let me tell you why I'm going to bow down before him. And he says right here in verse 3, On the day I called, you answered me. Boom, right there. When I called, when I was in distress, when I was struggling in the middle of a battle, in the middle of darkness, I called on you and you answered me. You increased strength within me. You know, that, that phrase right there is very similar to the circumstance of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. You know, God answered him. In other words, David saw divine action. It wasn't just these dead prayers. He saw God at work in his life. He has come to know the Lord's personal care. Experience God's intervention. He says, you increase strength within me. Very similar to Paul's boast in the New Testament when he writes uh, the, the second letter to the Corinthians. Remember that part where he says, I approached God three times. Hey, deliver me from this infirmity, from this, this thorn on the side. And I love what he writes. He says in verse 9 of, of chapter 12, he says, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast. That's what Paul says. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't that awesome? What a promise. What a blessing. Anybody's gone through any struggles lately? Has anybody had any battles that you're like sweating and you just don't know how to handle it? And you're like, I don't think I can do this. You can't say, God, I got it. I'll take it. Nah, we're saying, God, I need you. Fight for me. Stand in the gap for me. Answer me. Give me the strength. Because when I am weak, that's when you make me strong. What a promise. In, ver in verse 3, he says, On the day I called, you answer me. You increase strength within me, says the song or Psalm uh, 138, verse 3. So David doesn't mention the actual particular. He just says, When I called, you answered. He doesn't get into the details of what was it that he was in a mess in. But all we know, whatever the 
the circumstances, whatever the particulars, whatever it was, he was able to weather it because God increased his strength. Because God fortified him when he felt weak, when he felt not able to handle it. God was there to fortify him and lift him up and sustain him through that dark period. In the next verse, he not only says, I, as the king, am going to thank the Lord, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, bow before God. But you know what? My desire and my plea is that all the kings, all the rulers will also worship you, will also thank you, will also praise you. All the kings on earth will give you thanks, says verse 4. Lord, when they hear what you have promised, it's a plea in some versions. It adds the word may. May all the kings on earth praise you, God, when they hear of your divine promise, when they hear your word, when they hear you uh, proclaim and make these promises that every ruler will submit completely to you. And you know, that's not out of bounds as well, right? I love that we see snippets in the Bible of leaders, rulers, Kings from different countries eventually submit to the power of God, right? You look at Pharaoh when Moses several times approached him, hey, let my people go. But eventually he realized, man, I can't go against the power of God. I got I to gotta obey. I got to go ahead because the God of, of Israel, man, that's a powerful God. It's a true living God. Nebuchadnezzar, the same thing. I mean, he was blown away when he saw that these guys in the fiery furnace were not being consumed. And then he said, hey, pull them out. Man, they're God. I mean, this is, that's the true God. Of all the gods that we have, this guy's the real deal. So all the rulers, and that's David's plea, that not just Nebuchadnezzar, not just, uh, uh, let's see who else, uh, during the time of Jonah. Remember Jonah? He went to Nineveh, and he said, hey, 40 days, this place is going to be destroyed. It's going to be desolate. It's going to be consumed unless you repent. And the Bible says that from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth and they, they earnestly sought the Lord. It's the Ninevites. And the king, he made a decree. He said, hey, everybody, you need to get right. You earnestly seek the Lord because it may be that he will relent and not consume us. And sure enough, the Lord saw their repentant hearts. And, of course, 30 years later, other kings rose up, right? And that's when the northern kingdom got swept away. But that's another message. He said, though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble. Well, actually, uh, he's the king of kings, and his glory transcends the power of all human monarchs. In 5 and 6, he said, they will sing to the Lord uh, of the Lord's ways, okay, of, of his deeds, of his great works. That's what he wants. That's the plea that David has for all the rulers, all the judges, all the kings and presidents and so forth. For the Lord's glory is great. Though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble. But he knows the haughty, the proud, right? The conceited from a distance. In other words, they will hear of his glory, of his majesty, of his justice. They will also hear of his compassion and his love for the lowly. God is not too high and mighty to overlook his humble servant. And even though the Lord is in heaven far above everything and everyone, he still regards 
the lowly, those with a, a heart of humility, a spirit of humility. He is aware of their needs. He is aware of their struggles. He's aware of their injustices. Remember Hannah? When she came, she wanted a son. She couldn't bear. She was barren and she prayed before God and, and the Lord finally answered. And in her prayer, she says a, a few things that, that just kind of reminds me of how the Lord looks upon the lowly. She says in her prayer, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Kind of like David, right? My horn is lifted up by the Lord. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts, very similar to what Pastor Lonnie preached just a few weeks ago, right? In James, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, in, in um, Super Bowl 44, you know, many athletes uh, show gratitude, right? Whenever they, they make a touchdown, sometimes they'll, they'll get on one knee, or they'll say a prayer, or they'll, you know, I don't know, do something. Where people know, oh, here's a spiritual guy right there. He's maybe thanking the Lord or something. Um, so former Indianapolis cold kicker Matt Stover, um, he, he did in the very first quarter of the Super Bowl, Super Bowl um, 44, he did a 30-yard field goal. And as soon as he went in, he pointed towards the heavens in thankfulness to the Lord. And of course, we've seen that before. But in the fourth quarter, toward the end, the game's on the line here. In the fourth quarter, he missed a 51 yarder and as soon as he missed it he did the same thing in gratitude and thankfulness to the lord and he pointed towards the heaven and that action didn't escape uh notice cbs announcer jim nance made note of the action lauding stover as a spiritual man grateful for divine blessing in success and failure victory and defeat and the Bible teaches us to give glory to God in all we do, not just if it's successful situations, right? God receives much glory when we praise him and remain faithful, even when things do not go the way we would like them. In the good, the bad, and the ugly, we must be grateful. We must be thankful. And then finally, he closes up the song by saying, the Lord is our help until the very and he says, if I walk into the thick of danger, you will preserve me, right? Your hand's going to be over me. Watch me. You will save me. In verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Lord, your faithful love endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. Let me quickly say, he says, you save me because you are powerful. David recognizes that God's past protection fortifies him and prepares him for the future distresses. He can trust. Hey, you've taken care of me before. You'll definitely take care of me in the future. I mean, these are anticipated troubles. It's not like, okay, some of these false teachings that we hear about nowadays on TV, right? Hey, now that you're in Christ, you're now in God, then no more worries for you. You're going to be rich. You're going to be awesome. You're going to be healthy. You'll never grow sick. You'll never even get a cold. Just think positive. And you have this mindset. But David says, ah, in anticipation, if you've taken care of me in in Troubled times, you will take care of me in troubles to come. And I know that you're going to watch over me. You're going to still be my sustainer. So, and then he says, and fulfill your purpose. I mean, God fulfills his purpose. Everything God has ordained for us will be fulfilled in our lives for his glory 
and for his purpose. And because, because his love is eternal, there is no limit to what he can accomplish to those that are in covenant or in relationship with the Lord. And David pleads, keep working in my life, Lord. Do not abandon your work on your people. Do not abandon your work in me. Finish what you have started. You said, Israel, you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. Finish that promise. You said that my descendants, eventually, that my kingdom is going to be forever. And eventually, 14 generations later, Jesus is born. Right in line with the perfect work of God. Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So he's not done with you. He's not done with me. He will be faithful and complete his work in your life. He will be faithful and complete his work in my life. And so this psalm teaches us that we too can declare our thankfulness to God, especially when he answers us. Let's not keep it silent when we say, hey, brother, could you please pray for it? And you fill in the blank. And then when the Lord answers, hey, how's your grandmother? She's still in the hospital? Or how's your friend? Or how's your, your, your classmate? Or how? Declare it. Proclaim it. Share it. Hey, God is good. He's faithful. I got the job. I got the increase. You know, I, I, the Lord is good. The surgery went well. I went through, uh, the Lord gave me strength to navigate this dark journey. And so there's a few things that we can learn, learn from, from hearts that are grateful and thankful. One is, just look at the psalm. How can we display a heart of thanksgiving? By singing, just like David did, right? Whether you sound like a crow or a canary, the Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord. That's an unorganized sound. As long as your heart is there, you want to worship him, right? The other thing that you can display as far as being a heart of thanksgiving is be joyful or joyfully come to church. Come to the temple. Come and worship him. Not because you have to. I got to check the box off. It's Sunday. Here I go again. Let's go. Come on, kids. And you're dragging with, a, with a, not an attitude. It's, it's more of an obligation that ought not to be so. Not for the believer. Not for those that, are, that put their faith and trust in Jesus. Another thing is by bowing with humility. Our hearts before the Lord. Because our body is the temple. Remember, you don't have to wait to come here to meet with God. In private, in your home, in your closet, while you're driving, you have complete access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How can we display hearts of thanksgiving? By asking God for deliverance. By asking God for forgiveness. By asking God for salvation. He will hear your humble requests. My friend, if you are walking without Christ, without God, without this gospel, then I pray that you may pray, that you will understand that you can have a, a grateful heart, of a heart of thanksgiving by approaching God and say, Lord, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me. And I receive this gospel message, this good news. Deliver me. I need this salvation that only you freely offer. And he hears your humble request. How can we display hearts of thanksgiving, trusting that he will fulfill his purpose in your life. And last but not least, by understanding that thanksgiving or that thankfulness is always connected to God. Let me come back to our illustration from the beginning, from this uh, study that was done in California. 
you know, they were onto something, right? Going back to that research study, these psychologists, they've discovered that being thankful is good for the body, mind, and soul. But to fully understand that the, the study, uh, this study, one needs to connect the dots. Thanks, thanksgiving, thankfulness, they're all theological terms. There's a connection there to God. When we use these terms, there is something within us that radiates towards the eternal God. If one was to ask, well, what am I thankful for? And if the answer is like, well, I'm thankful for things, right? I'm thankful for my car. It takes me place to my job. And I'm thankful for my job. And I'm thankful for my career. I'm thankful for my house. It protects us. But these are stuff. There's still something we're left wanting. Because then you start realizing as you press forward, you start realizing, well, somebody made the car. Somebody engineered it. Somebody put it together. Somebody gathered all the materials, the raw materials to make that car so that I can be safe, so that I can go to work. Somebody, you know, cut the lumber. Somebody made the building plan for my home so that we can be protected. So you know what? Now we got to upgrade and we got to be thankful for the people who did these things. So yeah, let's be thankful for people. That takes us to the next level. I'm thankful for my mom. I'm thankful for my family, my dad, my sisters, my teacher, my boss. Because there's a little more meaning versus being thankful just for stuff. There's meaning because now you're thankful for people. But even that, when you press more and you push more and you're searching and you're seeking. But what about these people? The Bible says that people are made in the image of God. That we are bears of God's image. And that you quickly find out the connection to the throne of God himself. That he's made you and I, everybody. He made your mom, your dad, and your, your, your teacher and so forth. The whole family. And so you can say, Lord, I'm thankful for what I have. But I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful for people because they're made in your image. So ultimately it goes all the way to you, God. I'm thankful and I'm grateful to you, God. Because everything that I have, stuff or humans, whatever, it is because of you. You've made it available. And that is why I'm thankful. And that is why I'm grateful. I'm not just going to be in general saying, oh, I'm just thankful. you got to say, why are you thankful? And if you do the search, it'll take you straight to God. 